Hello, welcome to the Scouted Football Podcast. If you've just joined us, you are in the right place for all things under 23 football, the best young players across the world, youth international tournaments, and our weekly reminder of just how crazy Erling Haaland is. Um, if you are returning to the Scouted Football Podcast, welcome back. Hope you've enjoyed the previous episodes. Uh, as ever, I'm Joe Donahue, your host and, and guide through the world of under 23 football. And as is the case with every episode of the Scouted Football Podcast, I'll be joined by esteemed guests with varying expertise from Scouted's very own contributors to respected football journalists from from all over the world. Um, With the world currently on hold, we thought it was the perfect time to to go back and and relive some of our favourite under-23 performances, campaigns and and tournament displays. Uh, And and who better to discuss it with than than the boys over at Scouted HQ? Um, You know, we've been charting the progress of some of the world's best since our, since our creation in 2014 and that's seen us cover a, a wide range of youth international tournaments some of some, some really obscure leagues and competitions and allowed us to cast a very wide net and a, and a BDI over the next big things really. To begin with this week uh, we start with Jake Entwistle who is scouted through and through. Um, he is the biggest Kylian Mbappe fan there is having discovered what a prodigious talent he was at the Under-19 European Championships back in 2016, falling in love, if he doesn't mind me saying, with the expert technique, control and and the blistering speed of of the then-teenage Frenchman. Uh, Jake, welcome to the pod. It's it's taken us 21 episodes for you to make your debut, but finally we've got you here and and we have you discussing your favourite topic, no less. How does it feel? I am absolutely delighted to finally be making an appearance and I can only apologise for it being so delayed, but obviously... In the world of football, I'm always quite busy with my squawker stuff as well, so I try and find it hard to get a moment. But as you said, there's no time like the present when unfortunately we're all sort of locked away to just talk about one of the best young players in the world in Kylian Mbappe. And as you mentioned, it was that European Under-19 Championship in which I don't want to take credit as you alluded to in terms of discovering but that was the first time I'd watched him play properly it, it coincided with me starting the scouted football journey and and speaking to Steve about joining the team and and what to work on so I watched that tournament closer than I watched any other youth tournament before that and as you said uh, you're allowed to say fall in love because I think it has been a love story ever since watching that tournament uh, you mentioned there that you're a fellow uh, podcaster and you currently host the, the Squawker Talker, which is also another excellent podcast that you should check out. Um, just before we get on to our chat about Mbappe at that tournament, how did you first really get involved in that in the first place at Squawker? Um, so at Squawker, it's more of a case of the, because of how fast paced the, the football environment is, um, all the people that were doing our podcast ended up moving on to Pastures New exploring new opportunities and we were left with a void in terms of (laughs) enough voices to have on the Squawker Talker podcast and because I love talking when I'm comfortable and talking about something I know a lot about which I think is football I just put myself forward to try and foster some stat chat some player focused chat and and other discussions about what's going on in the football world as well as making really really bad predictions about what's going to happen in games we try and have fun with it. It's not We're not pretending to be the most groundbreaking podcast out there, but it's just another medium for people that enjoy what Squawker does, looking at stats. Yeah, the Squawker Talker is... I'm very fortunate to be in that position. It wasn't because I've 
shown any real uh, excellence in hosting and speaking that I was picked. Um, <laughs> I just said, we need to try and get this going again. And I wanted to get involved with it. And yeah, we, we do that every Thursday. If you ever do want to listen at the moment, there's a bit of hiatus, but um, uh, this and the Squawker Talker podcast would be a very nice little duo to have on your playlist. Yeah, that's very much the same sort of story of, of how we got the, the, the Scouted Football podcast up and running again um, after Connor Garrett and Jack Grimsey uh, embarked on, on that journey a couple of years ago. Um, so you mentioned the stuff that you do for Squawker. I mean, obviously, it's football is something you're very passionate about. That That's very clear for, for anyone who knows you or for anyone who, who follows you on Twitter. Um, why do you think that you are so so driven to you know share the this that sort of information with people you know create those cool graphics that that Squawker do and 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 routinely be one of the first with really niche and, and really interesting stats? I think it's just it comes out of a genuine love of watching football and seeing players do amazing things and then just being having access to through the Opta data that we get and. The ability to find stories, even not through watching football at times, because I save, I say I follow football obviously closely due to work. But it's it's strange that how you can work in the industry and find yourself watching less or watching fewer matches than you did when you were sort of not working in it. So very much sort of how I base my opinions or where to watch next is through finding the data first, finding the players in that way, and then going to look at the ones that I know are going to be incredible rather than stumbling across a tournament and and seeing a young French prodigy um, start to do sombrero flicks over players in the 90th minute of games in a in an under 19 tournament so the way I consume football has changed massively since I started working in it but the passion to sort of tell the stories and try and find new players uh, and it's mainly about helping other people find those players as well I think that's what I enjoy the most is Sometimes I can get a bit silly and it comes across maybe as like bragging or you want that rush of being one of the first people to to spot a player or to find a statistic. And that's what motivates me to to find those stats and those players. But I genuinely love trying to t- teach people about the players or or trying to learn more myself and then share that learning with other people, which is which is why when it's a player that no one knows about, you get even more passionate about it. Um, I'm just going to pick up on one of the things that you said in in that little monologue was the uh, was the, the the players that rainbow flick over the opposition at the corner of the pitch and, and drive into the box and and I know exactly who you're making reference to there and I suppose that's that just takes us nicely into um, your scout with throwback suggestion um, which was obviously the, the under 19 Euros in, in 2016 the Kylian Mbappe tournament if you will um, which you of course covered for us quite extensively I don't for many people they won't have seen the tweet but you, you did tweet about Kylian Mbappe at that time decrying that he was the second coming of Thierry Henry okay maybe not that last bit but you know you, you called it before most even knew who he was and and what I suppose what was it about Mbappe that caught your eye at that tournament because you know he wasn't the golden ball winner and he wasn't the golden boot winner either yeah I do want to clarify and again because <laughs> after after being concerned about portraying myself as some smug Kylian Mbappe discoverer I, there were plenty of people that had had watched him early on at Monaco and knew about him coming into that tournament. As you said, it was quite early because, yeah, 2016, he was very young for an under-19 tournament anyway himself. Um, so he was very much the 
the new boy in in that squad, I think two years junior to Kevin uh, Jean Kevin Augustin, who got the golden boot and who won the golden ball, um, as you alluded to there. But with Mbappe, I don't think my Thierry Henry comparison came that early. Um, there ended up being a gif of him scoring a goal for Monaco that I sort of said was similar, um, which is a really easy comparison to make. But it's not, it's not the fact that he is similar to Thierry Henry in the same that he op- he operates on that left-hand channel because he's right-footed, incredibly fast, able to beat an offside trap and develop to sort of orthodox side foot finishes into the far corner of the net. As an Arsenal fan, something like that, when a striker does that, um, you're going to make that comparison immediately, especially because of the Monaco links and especially because of the France links. But um, Mbappe at that tournament was how he plays now. It was a complete performance of a player that is so confident in his own ability that borders on arrogance. Um, you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast in the intro about Erling Haaland being um, an incredible talent and and someone that I knew through Scouted Football's coverage of him to look further into. One of his standout abilities is the fact that he's so confident in his own ability and, and doesn't make any excuses for what his strengths are and what potentially his weaknesses are as well. And I think that makes him more exciting to watch um it makes him easier to like and follow as a footballer and I think with Mbappe we saw that at the tournament himself because France actually lost their first game against England in the tournament um and the England squad that beat them a large majority formed the part of the under 20 World Cup winners that I then went to watch in person as well but Mbappe in that tournament played left wing played right wing um Jean-Kevin Augustin played as a right winger at times and then up front but it was Mbappe's ability to bamboozle defenders with genuine skill and technical ability, as well as just embarrass them in, in flat-out foot races. Kylian Mbappe, good run as well, rolls it across, and France have an equaliser. High-scoring start to this match, Ludovic Blas arriving, and it is 1-1 here. Credit France for a great response. Well, he did ever swell from the number 11 here, Mbappe gets past Dallon, the right back, far too easily. Nothing grabs your attention quite like someone with genuine raw pace. And, and even with Haaland, the, the first clip that I watched of him that was tweeted on Scouted Football was his incredible ability to go from box to box, almost teleporting um, in transition. And, and Mbappe does that with the ball at his feet, which makes him even more ridiculous. And, and we see that now. Um, and we've seen that through his career, obviously only turning 21 years old in, in December. He's already achieved so much, uh, which is something that I've documented for for Squawker and for Scouted Football as well. Numerous moments, numerous threads, videos. His list of achievements at this age is only the tip of the iceberg because I think it's the genuine talent that caused those achievements to be reached that is seriously exciting. And I think because he plays for PSG and... Because sometimes they've not had the best reputation, especially in big games, um, people do his actual talent a disservice. But anyone that watched him in that under-19 tournament that we're that we're speaking about um, would have had the exact same feeling that you're just watching a footballer that loves playing football um, and wants to play it in his own way, which um, is embarrassing opponents, really. Um, but doing so with ruthless efficiency and as you said, he didn't get golden ball, but I think it was five goals and and three assists. Maybe I think he was directly involved in the most goals. So 
um, it wasn't just showboating for showboating's sake. It was showboating to win games and lift trophies, which is what he's continued to do. Um, and I can imagine he will do for a lot longer as well. He's for sure. He's a he's a contender for for the Ballon d'Or as soon as I mean he is now a contender for the Ballon d'Or. But as soon as you know the Lionel Messi's and Cristiano Ronaldo's of this world have have retired and and Mbappe will still be you know twenty four, twenty five, twenty six coming into the traditional prime years. Um, he's going to be uh, a real real contender there. Um, I mean I've gone back and watched a little bit of of Mbappe at that tournament. Um, uh, partly at your request and also because you know it's it's great to look back on on these defining moments in a player's career and i can see exactly where you're coming from you know he's cheeky he's tricky uh, and you're really really beginning to see that explosive pace in action knocking the ball past players and and exploding into the space that he's identified at the time you 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 clearly thought that there was enough there to say that he would be a top level player um but was it enough to convince that you is that actually he'd become utterly one unplayable? of my regrets because i think I profiled him for, I think he was one of my first profiles I wrote for Scouted Football. And I was I was relatively quite reserved in, in how good I thought he was going to be. My my tweets were sort of jokingly saying um, and referencing, as you mentioned earlier, like the second comings of um, R9 and, and Thierry Henry and any other prodigious wonder kid that had developed in, in the previous 10 years. So I, I, in, in being completely honest, I didn't think he'd reach these levels this quickly based on what I'd watched there I knew that with exposure to brilliant exposure to first team football um he would only score goals but it was following him in that monaco side in which his goals per minute ratio was always under 90 minutes because he was never playing every game um he was either being introduced late or playing 60 minutes and alongside someone like radamel falcao um that that period when they won the league um and playing in that duo up front Alongside the likes of Bernardo Silva, Fabinho, um, Benjamin Mendy and, and Thomas Lamar, they were all incredible as a team and Jardim managed them all um, fantastically well for how young they were. So I think that accelerated how quickly he reached his potential. I always knew he would, it was obvious watching him, as I said, that he this kid was um, incredibly special because he was so much younger than everyone else at that tournament. It wasn't like he was at peak age at the under-19 tournament. He was two years junior to everyone else um, and was one of the best players in the tournament, if not the best, uh, alongside Augustin, who who scored the most goals. So I think it was accelerated by how well he was managed during his early years at Monaco. And that then made my profile, as I said, look quite reserved. But the more you watched of him at Monaco, and then obviously when he went to PSG, um, incredible goal scoring rate just accelerated completely. And and one byproduct of me following him is that I, I sat down to document every goal he scored so that I could try and be the authority on Kylian Mbappe's stats at least. And in his career of 214 games for club and country, he has been involved in 194 goals, um, which is one a goal or assist every 77.7 minutes, which is incredible because he obviously wears the number seven shirt now, although I still believe that the number 29 is the reason he reached his ceiling so quickly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. We, you do have that thing about wonder kids and, and playing in the number 29. And, and it is actually surprising how many of them do don that, that number shirt. Um, the, you mentioned, obviously, Jean-Kevin Augustin there, who, who claimed the, the golden ball and the golden boot at, at the under 19 euros in 2016. 
Um, he's obviously currently on loan at Leeds United from RB Leipzig. And, and I suppose this isn't to say, you know, where's it gone wrong for him? Because it clearly hasn't. He's he's had a good he's had a good career so far. Um, he just hasn't hit the nauseating heights that Mbappe has. Aside from Mbappe and, and Augustin, who who are the others in that 2016 France under-19 squad um, who, who've gone on to do well or or some who've fallen by the wayside when when they appeared to to sort of be on the brink of breaking onto the big stage? Yeah, I think just quickly on the on Augustin, the point of that, he's still 22 years old. So because of people like Mbappe and obviously players like Rashford as well, who is so young but achieved so much and played so many games, it's almost distorted the actual general pattern that if you are 22 years old, no one actually expects you or perhaps they shouldn't expect you to have scored um, or been involved in nearly 200 um, senior goals by now. And I think um, Jean-Kevin Augustin has... Again, he's not played much at Leeds when he joined and obviously will now, I don't know what will happen to that loan deal based on the current footballing climate. But at Leipzig, he showed glimmers of being the player that, um, again, I profiled him alongside Mbappe and as a, a forward and a French forward, there's so many of them that even though he can't get club minutes, he's not only competing for for club minutes, he's also competing for minutes um, against the likes of Moussa Dembele as well, who is a similar age um, for France. So I think it's sort of, to lean on that point just further, is like anyone that's judging Augustin's career as well, I think it's even too premature for him. Obviously, he may not reach the heights that um, competing alongside Mbappe for the Golden Ball that tournament suggested, but Mbappe is a freak and Augustin is closer to uh, what would happen usually to a player that age. The other player at that tournament that I I really enjoyed watching, and I don't, it's hard to say, and I think difficult circumstances around his career as well that I don't want to sort of give too much weight for or know as much information about is um, Amin Harit, who is at Schalke now. And this season, again, I think he's found some consistent playing time under David Wagner. And again, in terms of a purely sort of stat perspective and and not incredibly niche stats or or intelligent use of them, but he's always top four most fouls won. He's always in the top four most dribbles completed. And that's the exact sort of player you saw when he was playing in that tournament. Someone that played in a central midfield area, looked to receive the ball, looked to commit opposition players before passing, which can sometimes be a weakness in the sense that maybe the pass can be played much earlier. But he was the other player in that France squad that I really enjoyed watching um, alongside their attacking talents and to sort of reduce it down to one other name that I pick, would really enjoy from that team it would be um, Amin Hari who is now of course a, a Moroccan international so he may get more minutes in that national team rather than competing against the likes of Awar who could even change nationality as well. Mbappe clearly was the clear outlier in that group and, and I suppose in another crop, in another year, we, we would be praising the likes of Amin Harit and, and Jean-Kevin Augustin now for, for the careers that they've had and the likes of Ludovic Blas as well. Um, it's just that Mbappe has become such a star and naturally they're, they're compared directly to him, as you say, even though that, that helps no one really. Um, do you think that's often the, one of the dangers of youth, youth tournaments really, that you know you can play out of your skin for five or six games and then come back to your club where you're either a fringe player or, or still playing reserve football and, and can perhaps begin to stagnate you know is it, is it typically a hard barometer to judge how well a player's career trajectory is going to be based on one summer's efforts over over just a handful of matches 
I definitely, I definitely think it's easy to get swept up in how impressive someone can look in an extremely small sample size. Let's be clear as well that um, a tournament would be, but it's because they are perceived to be the best of their age that if they stand out in that environment, then it's quite easy to expect that, or it's quite easy to get excited and begin to expect that they're going to walk into a senior team. I think Phil Foden is the obvious example in the sense that he won the Golden Ball at the 2017 um, Under-17 World Cup. That England side in itself was incredible. That was one tournament, again, that I managed to watch a bit more of than I do now. Um, And Sancho obviously was part of that team, having previously been the best player at the 2017 Under-17 Euros. I'm now just getting so caught up in my years and which age groups, but apologies if any of those are incorrect. But even then, watching Sancho at that tournament, you're like, right, this kid is so much better than everyone else's age now, but will he be able to get into Man City? We're not sure. Um, That didn't happen. And then Dortmund slowly introduced him and now look at him and just about to turn 20 years old and probably will be 20 when you first listen to this, um, is now considered one of the best wingers in the world. So... I think it's fair to say that you can usually spot the players that are going to be, or maybe not are going to be, but display the talents and the characteristics necessary to make a progression. But then it is completely down to how many minutes they're given in the first team, how quickly they're given them and their own attitude if they aren't given them. Um, Because it must be really disheartening to know that you are so much better than everyone else your age, but you're then playing with people between the age of 22 and and 30 years old. And yeah, there's sometimes a gap of 15 years now in a professional game. People that have maintained their careers so well, obviously as prime examples, you've got people like Messi and Ronaldo who 32 and 35 respectively, I think um, don't really look like they're going to be slowing down or at least they'll still be performing at elite level. And then they're playing against people that are 19 years old. Um, So that step up of your little microcosm of, of junior football, um, you usually know if you're going to be good enough, I would say, but there's so many factors that then determine whether you will be or won't be that um, it's hard to completely nail down if they will be successful. But I think you can definitely find out the players that have the sort of, to throw a term that's used a a lot, but you can usually spot the generational players in these tournaments Um, But then there's a whole host of factors that will then decide whether they get to reach that or how early they reach that potential. Thank you very much to Jake for opening this throwback episode with Kylian Mbappe's under-19 Euros exploits back in 2016. Uh, We're now moving one year on into the future to 2017. Uh, Jake obviously has taken us through Mbappe's performance at a tournament as he looked to break onto the big stage. But now we have Stephen Ganavis, who's going to keep it PG when discussing uh, one of his favourite players of all time and his individual display in a a single game uh, in one of Juventus's great Champions League games in recent times. Um, Steve, welcome back to the pod. Uh, I'll let you introduce your scouted throwback selection and why you've chosen this player and and why this specific game in particular. Yeah, so the the player I've picked is... Uh, Paulo Dybala, uh, as everyone knows that listens routinely, I'm a massive Juventus fan and uh, this game in particular uh, against Barcelona, uh, peak of Max Allegri and his time at Juventus, you know, Higuain in his prime, Mandzukic in that defensive winger role, 
Danny Alves just hanging in there. Pjanic, Chiellini, Bonucciolo, their best. But then in this game, uh, we just saw Dybala just be the, the real fulcrum of the attacking unit. And um, it's kind of where he you know, really showed that he was one of the elite players in the world. And it's kind of been a bit upsetting in the last uh, year or two since Ronaldo uh, has arrived at Juventus. He's had to take a bit of a step back. But um, yeah, it just showed that, you know, at his best, at the top of his game, uh, he's he's pretty much as good as anyone in world football. So, Paulo Dybala, uh, playing in the UEFA Champions League at, at the age of 23 at the time, um, put on a bit of a show against Barcelona in, in that quarterfinal game, um, scoring two early goals and really setting the tone for the rest of the game. Uh, playing in behind Gonzalo Higuain, who you just mentioned, um, I'd say it was probably Dybala's ruthlessness early on in that match, but also his movement is probably what caught well, it's definitely what caught the eye um, for me in this fixture. W- would you agree, Steve? Yeah, his his movement off the ball is like sharp movements, occupying like really dangerous spaces, uh, really throughout some of Barcelona's defenders. Obviously, they had uh, Jerry Mathieu playing at left back in the first half and, and Dybala kind of always tended to move kind of in that direction to, to occupy that side of the field. And really ran him ragged that he had to eventually be subbed off at halftime. Uh, then in the in the second half, he kind of moved to the other flank where uh, Sergi Roberto was was taking up uh, his uh, post at right back, and and he started doing the same thing there. Uh, it's just yeah, an incredible performance. His, his two goals were just absolutely insane. The first one uh, receiving a, a pass from Juan Cuadrado around the corner of the the six yard box, kind of swiveling on a on a dime and just instinctively just curling this shot between PK and Iniesta and around to Stegen into the far corner is just a, a little uh, a, a thing of beauty. Um, just one of those goals that it doesn't seem so amazing, but when you kind of like really focus on the mechanics of the whole thing, there's not many players uh, that could do that. And then about 15 minutes later, with some defenders sitting back waiting for a cross, he takes up the uh, the space around the D uh, and and fires this shot that was kind of passed a little bit behind him but he just wrapped his boot around it uh you know which is customary for him he's got one of the best left foots in the world uh, and sizzled it past uh to Stegen at his near post and uh you know he was close to it but but really just had no chance when Dybala smacks him good they uh they stay hit yeah for sure that that first goal is just the most perfect little swivel as you said you know setting himself perfectly on his left foot and, and bending it from outside the post into the far corner um, and just as you say, you know, the, the biomechanics of that goal, I think the, if you looked at it from a purely scientific perspective, it would be really interesting to see, you know, in, the, in such a high pressure environment, someone just to set themselves, take the shot and, and to, to whip it into that corner. You know, it's, it's as you say, not, not exactly the easiest of strikes. Um, and then, of, of course, the second is just exquisite, you know, a real, a real fantastic goal um, and a strike that you wouldn't be surprised to see Lionel Messi score because it just has that sort of nonchalance with that with that left boot, you know, coming into into the box from from deep and and yeah, as you as you say, you know, the the ball is played a little bit behind him, so to readjust his body and still get enough whip and power behind it to be to Stegen is is great. Clever little ball for Dybala, superbly finished. Barcelona opened up. Juventus at it from the off. 
Messi's heir apparent has given Juventus the lead against Messi's Barcelona. Aside from his goals in that game, which obviously will demand the most attention, why is this the throwback performance you've gone for? Is it perhaps the one that you know means the most to you? Yeah, the thing that sticks this performance in my mind is he, he didn't really put up uh, huge numbers, only had 27 passes, 48 touches, uh, one successful dribble. But everything that he did was kind of impactful and you could just tell the whole game, the Barcelona defenders just struggling to mark him and whenever, whenever they let him loose... He took advantage straight away and punished them. Um, the two goals were some of the, f- the few times he really got a chance to, to you know, wheel into some space. Um, and both times just straight away finished uh, with a plomb. There was another time where I uh, probably had a chance to to get a hat trick. The Barcelona defenders just let him wheel onto his left foot outside the box, and that shot for him is is like a penalty almost, um, curling it into the far corner. And the only thing that really stopped it going in was uh, PK getting in the way and 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 blocking it, just just things like that. It just shows he's a player that doesn't need a lot of the ball, but um, so impactful when when he can get the ball in central areas, um, look up and 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 get onto his left foot. Paulo Dybala at that stage in his career, would you say that that was sort of his best period for you there uh, under Allegri? And do you think he can get that back, or do you think that we've just come to expect this? that standard of performance from him now and, and that, you know, he, he's going to need to go to the next level above and beyond to, to really uh, assert himself as one of the world's best again. Yeah, there, there was another um, period under Allegri where it was like at the start of the season, he scored like two or three hat-tricks in, in about two months and I think had about, you know, 12 or 13 goals in the first eight or nine games of the season. Um, but... I think that the unfortunate thing with Dybala is he's never kind of been given that real license to take over the attack, especially since Ronaldo's been there. He really functions best kind of as that shadow striker, um, but he's never been given a, a great opportunity to to really have a run playing in that position on a consistent basis. And, and since Ronaldo has arrived and really taken up a, a chunk of space in the, at the striker position, it's yeah kind of forced him into more... More roles operating out wide. Played back to Dybala. What a strike that is. Paolo Dybala with two for Juventus. There's an Argentinian stealing the show. Lionel Messi is playing second fiddle to him. A Dybala double puts Juventus in control. Thank you to Steve for his uh, love letter to Paolo Dybala there. Uh, For the next segment, our resident Australian Steve leaves us and we're now joined by our resident American Justin Sousa. Um, Justin has links to Portugal and has alongside myself covered uh, a range of youth international tournaments over the past couple of years. Um, His scouted throwback selection comes from the 2018 UEFA Under-19 European Championships, um, which included the likes of Erling Haaland, Moise Keane, Bubakar Kamara and Mikel Cuisance. Um, But you haven't selected any of those guys, Justin. Um, First of all, how are you? But also, who have you gone for? Who's your selection? Hey, Joe. um, I'm doing well, you know. Stuck at home, as everybody should be, but uh, we're getting through it. Um, for my player, I chose Francisco Trinsound, uh from Portugal, end of Braga. Just a great technical winger, and I, I think with all the good players that Portugal had at that tournament, uh, he kind of went under the radar. 
Yeah, Portugal were, were the victors of that tournament, uh, triumphing over Italy in what was a really good final, really entertaining and, and high scoring. Um, Trincao is a player who's, who's been in the news recently uh, and one that you, Justin, spoke about on the January Transfers Part 2 podcast episode back in February, uh, following the news that he was moving to Barcelona at the end of the season. Um, just to, to start at the, in the present, is, is a move to a super club something that you could have foreseen at the time? Because if I recall correctly, he was one of a couple of Portuguese players at, at that tournament, as you've just alluded to, that who were really electric in that final third. At the time, I wouldn't have predicted you know Barcelona to make the move for him that they did. He had barely played any games for Braga at that point, and he really only started playing with them at the turn of the year in January. I would have expected that he would have gotten more playtime than he did at the start of the 2018-19 season and this season, given his performances at the Euros. But as we know, you know, football can be a, a crazy sport and sometimes the performances at youth level don't necessarily translate to a uh, senior level. It is nice, though, to see him uh, playing or it was nice to see him playing well uh, with Braga at the turn of this year. Yeah, this season he's been great breaking through at Braga and has pretty much established himself as a regular now um, in the last what what will be the last six months of his tenure there. Um, with this being a throwback episode, though, uh, we do want to focus on the past, unsurprisingly. Uh, and given that it's almost two years since that under-19 Euros display, is it a surprise that it's taken him this long to get to regular top division football? You just mentioned there that he hadn't really played for Braga this time two years ago. But were there any indicators at the tournament which made you think that he was perhaps a little too raw or wasn't ready enough yet for the step up to regular senior games? I think it was primarily the physical aspect of it. You know, the Portuguese league isn't terribly athletic, but um, it does require a player to be able to hold their own against some of the stronger defenders, especially him being a forward. I, I would have still expected him to have played a little bit more considering how well he did do and how technically gifted and composed he is in the final third but I, I really think it just comes down to the physical aspect of the game really we usually get quite invested in these players who we watch at under 17 under 18 under 19 level at these tournaments and and if we see them go on to do well um you know it's it's quite gratifying to you personally justin to to see Trinsau being appreciated on a much much bigger scale nowadays is that you know, what's that like? Is it good to, to see him sort of more in the spotlight or was he one that you were sort of hoping to, to keep to yourself for a few more years? Yeah, no, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big advocate for players kind of staying with the team that they kind of break out with for a year or two rather than looking for that immediate move to a big club. Him and Domingo Schino were two players that I felt did really well at that tournament and I wanted to see personally do really well with their clubs. Uh, with Kina, his situation at West Ham, and, and now with Watford, it's it is what it is. But I, I am really happy to see that Trinsound is is doing well with Braga, and hopefully, with the move to Barcelona, whether he goes out on loan next year or you know he somehow fights his way into the starting lineup or as a you know role player off the bench, I'm just hoping for the best for him. Stylistically, at at the tournament at the Under 19 Euros in 2018, um, what was it that drew your attention primarily to to Trinsau? I think what kind of drew me towards Trinsan at the tournament was the fact that he was just very composed and very technically gifted on the ball. Um, Juan Philippe or Jota, um, similar scenario with him, even though he was looked towards for goals. But Trinsan just had this this thing about him that every time he was on the ball, it never seemed like he didn't know what he wanted to do. He always seemed a step or two ahead of uh, his opponent. 
he also followed up on you know his teammates' shots with which I feel is a very underrated characteristic in a lot of forwards. He did it against Norway. He did it in the final against Italy for Portugal's second goal. And then, you know, if it really comes down to him needing to kind of grab a game by the scruff of the neck, uh, he has the capability to do that because he, he just has this ability to, to flip a switch to kind of, you know, go from a role player who kind of just does his bit to help his teammates to somebody who can really shine and, and be the star of a game. Yeah, completely. I mean, being a step ahead is always going to be accentuated at youth level, um, whether that be a step ahead physically or, or mentally, you know, having that quickness of thought. Um, it's how sort of these players stand out at youth international tournaments and, and how you can sort of quickly identify which ones are going to be, you know, their star players. Jota, or Jao Philippe, as he was known at the time, was another who was particularly eye-catching that year. He's gone on to be a, a, a bit part player for Benfica this season. It's probably a bit of a silly question, but out of those two, between him and Trincao, at the time, who is your favourite then and, and who is your favourite now, really? Um, being that the majority of my family and I are all Porto fans, it was it was nice to see. I mean, I sided with Trincao when the two of them you know, did well at the tournament, but it was nice to see the both of them kind of excel in their own right. Um, I think Jota caught the, caught the eye of most fans uh, because he scored goals. That was just his gift. But Trincao, like I said, just kind of had this this other factor to him where he could score goals, but he could also kind of drop into midfield and, and help the midfielders create a little bit if he needed to. He never looked frazzled when he got on the ball. Uh, pressure never seemed to get to him when defenders kind of came at him. It was just it was just nice to see a, a good, well-rounded winger uh, do well, even if he didn't get the plaudits that Jota did. Yeah, I remember. I remember uh, Trincao, or, or at least I feel like I remember Trincao was the better carrier from deep, um, sort of tucking into those midfield roles and then carrying it forward, and then and then you know putting it on a plate for the players like Jota. Um, in going forward, in terms of the Portuguese national team, it's probably assumed that Francisco Trincao will will get to the to the Senegal before before Jota does. But do you think that there is a future where where both players are? or big performers for the, for the senior national side, or do you think it's going to be a case of, you know, it'll be one or the other? I think the national team or the senior national team is, is a very interesting scenario. Fernando Santos gives young players the opportunity when he sees it, but, you know, players like Ruben Neves had to wait a while, and even Ruben Diaz had to wait a little while before they got their call up, even after excelling with their club teams for so long. And positionally, I mean, I think they play... Uh, as wingers, they play in positions that are kind of being filled by a lot of other players at the moment. You know, Gonzalo Gedge is a, is a favorite of Fernando Santos, even if he doesn't necessarily perform at the highest level with his club. Uh, he just has a track record of doing well with the national team. Uh, Bernardo Silva, you know, he can play on the wing. He can also play in midfield. Uh, João Felix, obviously, is, is a big name that kind of plays on the wing. Between the two, I think Trinsound will get the opportunity to play with the national team first or at least make his debut first but I could definitely see the possibility of the two of them playing together at some point So to recap we've had Kylian Mbappe's 2016 display at the under 19 Euros Paulo Dybala's masterclass against Barcelona in the quarterfinals of the 2016-17 Champions League and now Francisco Trincao's under 19 Euros exploits in 2018 so thank you to Justin for talking us through that one 
Uh, because at Scouted Football, we like to keep things neat and tidy. Uh, our final Scouted Throwback selection is a second individual performance. Um, Phil Costa, a regular on this podcast, uh, has deliberated between a few under-23 stars of the past and, and the present as well, uh, and, and landed on one very close to his heart. Um, Phil, welcome back to the pod. Uh, enlighten us, who, who is it that you've gone for? Well, I've done it. They say don't go back to your exes, but I've gone back and it's going to be uh, Cesc Fabregas. Uh, for his performance against Blackburn in 2009. So I don't know why I've unlocked these uh, these emotions, but we're doing it, so I'm here now. Yeah, I can totally imagine that it's kind of bringing up, opening fresh wounds, you know, with uh, Cesc Fabregas here. But I suppose he'll be one of your favourite players of all time. But yeah, his, his performance against Blackburn Rovers in a 6-2 victory uh, back in 2009, it's really as close to a 10 out of 10 performance as a creative midfielder can come, really. Four assists and a goal and a 6-2 romp. Briefly focus on the stats from that day. I mean, they are incredible. Um, he got through so much in 90 minutes, had the most touches, unsurprisingly, um, carrying Arsenal forward and picking locks with his passes, um, in all contributing to 12 of Arsenal's 24 shots, um, creating six chances for others and, and shooting on six occasions for himself. Phil, just how hard is it for a player to put on a display at Premier League level like that at the age of 22? I mean, it's always worth noting with Fabregas that even when he first joined, you know, uh, 16, 17, he was almost thrust straight into the, you know, the Invincibles. And then eventually he was the one that displaced Patrick Vieira in the side. So that's no easy feat on its own. But you could just tell even from a young age in his early teens, he was like so aware of, of where people were on the pitch and his touch was always perfect. And even though he may not have been spectacular during his his early time at Arsenal every decision was right every touch was perfect you know and you knew we had a player there and then what he went on to become under under the wing of Arsene Wenger was was something truly special and you know heading into into my early teens you that's when you really start to appreciate footballers and and he was like the first player that I genuinely thought wow this guy is incredible so to to be able to effectively carry Arsenal on his back like that during some some difficult years um, is just a true testament to his quality, really. Um, watching Fabregas's game back in, in this 6-2, um, you begin to see exactly why he was so highly rated um, at the time and obviously still now, given that he is your scouted throwback selection. So many given goes on the edge of the area, uh, including f- for the first Arsenal goal um, of the afternoon where he sets up Thomas Vermaelen. His, his progressive running reminds me a little bit of, of rugby union, where where he's gaining ground, even if it is just a small distance, uh, which can you know prove crucial in, in the long run. How valuable do you think those progressive five, ten yard runs are, and, and how hard are they to stop? Well, I think I think um, he'll be the first to say that he wasn't the quickest. You, you know, watching him sprint over long distances was quite funny sometimes because you know he he just looks like he was trudging through oil or something, but when you have the mind and the brain to be able to play in, at this level, you know, it's you don't need speed to to lose your marker over five, 10 yards. And that's what he was so good at. I think in that season in particular, he was given true creative license. Um, so basically everything went through him. And if you, if you watch the highlights back, you can really tell that because you've got, you know, Van Persie popping the ball into him. You've got Diaby coming in from deep, popping, popping the ball into him. And he was the, the true focal point and as you mentioned just being able to to spin away from markers and finding cute little touches on the edge of the box you know it, it's so difficult for 
defenders and midfielders to synchronise in that position because the defenders don't want to come out and be pulled out of position and the midfield don't want to be dragged in too deep. And he was perfect at that, you know, just finding little spaces in between back four and midfield. And, you know, it, you know, people forget Arsenal went 1-0 down in this game. Um, and it was almost as if he, he almost single-handedly thought, right, this is not on Arsenal playing Blackburn at home. Let's get our shit together. And he basically just carried everyone for that for that whole 90 minutes. And it was an incredible performance, really. Yeah, so in that first half, he, he had quite a good number of opportunities to score himself. Um, but it's it's the hat-trick of assists that people will probably remember from that first half. Um, His second of the afternoon, which is is a through ball for Robin Van Persie, who, I mean, at the time was hardly going to miss. It's sort of an embodiment of his attitude in that game, you know, wanting to get it down and play. Um, Phil, why don't you talk us through that second Arsenal goal and, and that second Fabregas assist? I mean, if you actually watch it back, you'll see that he's fouled um, around the halfway line. And, you know, he's not there complaining to the referee or um, complaining to someone else about some some slow movement or lack of options. He's straight on back on the ball again, putting the ball down. And um, it's almost as if Blackburn switch off and he he thinks, right, this is the, the time where I can really create something. So he's got the ball down and he drives into the final third with, with a lot of purpose. And all of a sudden, Van Persie makes this darting run across the fullback. And that, and as soon as he, he gains that extra yard, you know Fabregas is going to find him. The weight of the pass is perfect. You know, he doesn't need to break stride and he just, he just runs straight onto the ball and smashes it in. Um, in a typical Van Persie fashion. You know, he was so good at, at those low drives into the corner. And he slipped it through to Van Persie. It's 2-2. What a terrific ball. And Cesc Fabregas just picks him out. And I'm sorry, but when he gets it on his left peg, in those kind of positions, there's only one outcome. But it's just quick moments like that. You know, the game's at a lull. But he's he never switches off where where other people might and other players might, and and that was you know summed him up so nicely because he was always switched on and he was always looking for an opportunity to to create a chance or or um, maybe a pre assist for example. So uh, it was just having someone of that ilk um, who was really levels above everyone in that team, maybe Bar Van Persie. Um, that's how you know. That's how they stand out and. Um, it was just pure Fabregas, you know, taken down, no complaining, straight on with the game. And, and within 10 seconds, he's already labelled on a plate. Yeah, it really embodies, you know, taking the game by the scruff of the neck. And, and it shows that if you switch off for a moment against a player of his quality and a player of his ingenuity, then, you know, he's going to punish you. And, and unfortunately for Blackburn on that day, he was playing at, at a 10 out of 10 level. So it's no surprise that he did so well in getting four assists in that game. Um, the third of the afternoon, the third assist, that is, is another way he plays it in behind Blackburn. And it's Arshavin uh, who, who finishes well this time. But the thing that I want to talk about next is, is the solitary goal that, that Fabregas scores in this game. Um, because it comes about purely and simply because he's tried to play through teammates twice already in the same move. And, and it ricochets around and then and it falls quite kindly for him. Given that first half display, which which was exceptional, um, was it somewhat of an inevitability that he was going to find the back of the net himself? I mean, like you mentioned before, he he had a few shots in the first half. Um, you know, there was one in particular that he took from from the left where he drifted in and, and stung the palms of the keeper. Um, so you could sort of tell he was in the mood, even though he was creating so much throughout the 90 minutes. You know, he still had that edge and that taste for goal. 
And like you said, he, he initially the move that leads up to his goal, you know, he tries to pass to Van Persie and he, then there's another through ball that goes to Rosicki and they're both cut out. And then he just sort of wanders over to the left, um, controls a sort of backwards pass perfectly on his chest. And, you know, you hear the stadium just shout shoot in unison and and obviously he nails the technique and puts, you know, a really nice half volley straight into the top corner. And, and you know, it was, I was at the game and you, almost everyone in the stadium just sort of looked to their nearest partner in the, in the, in the stands and was just like, he deserves that. He's been so good. And um, it was just typical of him to crown off such a performance with such a brilliant goal. Because, you know, how many times do you see a, a strike like that or, uh, balloon miles over the bar especially on your weaker side so it, it was just again it was a testament to his quality you know to wait for the ball to drop in time instead of you know leaning back and getting over it he was in control of the ball as he always was and just to see it sail into that top top corner with the goalkeeper rooted was was quite something and you know even the celebration you could tell it was like a small weight off his shoulders not that we were in any danger of dropping points at that stage by that game um, but it was just, you know, I've deserved this. I've played really well today. And this was just a lovely moment to finish uh, finish the game off with. So, yeah, really amazing strike. And, you know, it was just perfectly described him, really. Perfect technique, perfect patience on the ball, perfect control. Yeah, he was. He really was levels above everyone in that team. I mean, in truth, watching the game back, he could have had a hat-trick and, and five assists. Such were the, you know, the quality or the perceived quality of the chances. I mean, I'm, I'm sure... Uh, ex- expected goals wouldn't agree with that statement, but you know F- uh, Fabregas was not your average player, and, and it was a truly outstanding performance. Um, just one of those games, really, that Blackburn just had to endure. I assume Fabregas's swagger around that time marks him down as one of your your all time favourite players, especially being an Arsenal fan, of course. Um, nowadays, wh- which under twenty three player would you say comes closest to that sort of security and and also creativity in midfield? Oh, I mean, it's it's difficult because the games honestly changed so much in such a small time. Um, now you don't really see um, midfielders like that um, sort of small and diminutive who who can dominate games like that and and really take creative control. For example, a lot of it is done through the wing backs, as Liverpool have shown, and uh, how Barcelona used to to do with Dani Alves, and even you know in wide areas through to players like Neymar and Messi, you know, there's not really many central midfielders or number 10s who really uh, can can sort of control games like that. But I think stylistically, um, even Emi Buendia at Norwich is, is quite similar, you know, small in stature, but very strong on the ball, very technically able. And um, a few performances from from this season, you can, you know, you can point to, to Buendia as a real creative focal point for Norwich. Um, but in terms of what Fabregas actually did, I think his predecessors were more of an example. You know, for example, Santi Cazorla, uh, Raquel May, all of these people who were never physically gifted, but so technically gifted. Whereas now I think you need a bit more about you physically to to succeed in the game. But I think Emi Buendia is a nice example, actually. And just finally, you, you said that you are at this game in particular. I mean, it's going to be good to be at any 6-2, which ends in your favour. But I'm sure you'll have been to plenty of Arsenal games in the past. And, and the question really is, why does this one stick out in your mind? And why why this individual Fabregas performance sticks out in your mind in, in sort of just a brief little sum up? 
I think it was a, it, honestly it was a combination of things. Um, you know, first of all, it was a lovely day. Um, you know, we had a even if we were struggling at the time for silverware, we had a really likable team, a talented team. You know, Arsene Wenger was still very much in his in his heyday for for coaching and getting the best out of players. Um, and as I mentioned before, I was maybe 13, 14 when this, when this game took place. Um, so that's what the age when you really start to appreciate footballers and how, and how good uh, they have to be to pull certain things off. And I just remember sitting there with my dad and, um, you know, you can truly appreciate how, how good these players are close up. And he was just, you know, it wasn't just the goals and the assist. It was everything about his game. You know, he's, what I used to love about Fabregas is how how often he used to scan the game. So if you if you watch him closely, his head's constantly turning left and right, left and right, looking for players, seeing how close players are to him, um, and that's what you need to to succeed at this level. Lampard was really good at that as well, for example. Um, so just being able to watch him close up, touch is perfect, pass is perfect, control perfect. Um, it was just a joy really. And it's, these are the games that you, you go to enjoy football and you fall in love with football. You know, these guys are top of the world in, in talent. During this stage, he was completely carrying Arsenal on a creative front. And even the fourth assist for Theo Walcott, you know, he's, he's essentially in front of goal, defenders closing in, but he has time to shoot. But just a, a gentle little touch out wide gives Theo Walcott a free shot and he buries it in the corner. And you just think, how many players would, would have the sort of the awareness and the feel of where everyone on the pitch is to find him there. Not many uh, is the truth. And he, he does it so well. Everything was so clean. Even the small touch to Walcott was perfect. And I think he's one of five players to assist four goals in one Premier League game. So, um, which strangely enough has quite an Arsenal flavour and Dennis Burkamp, Jose Reyes and Adebayor and Cazorla. So that's elite company there. And just that day, you know, the sun was shining. He was perfect. And, it was a great win for Arsenal, so that's why I chose it, really. Well, that was beautifully put. Um, thanks, Phil. Uh, that just about concludes our first scouted throwback special. Uh, we've spoken about Mbappe, Dybala, Trinsau, and, and of course Fabregas in this one. Um, stay tuned as we may well bring be bringing you uh, more of these in the future. Um, please let us know if you've liked today's little trip down memory lane uh, and leave us some feedback on Twitter or whichever podcast app you use, whether that be Apple, Spotify, Podbean, anything that you that you use um and and from all of us at scouted stay safe and stay at home um, we're looking forward to to regular football returning which hopefully won't be too many months away um, but yeah that's all from us on the scouted football podcast today uh, with many thanks to, to jake entwistle Stephen ganavas justin sosa and phil costa for joining me um see you soon <laughs>